Hey Seekers, what's up? Welcome back. Celia Curie writes quite boldly that one of the greatest problems that besets the modern world is the lack of mysticism. Since her writing this back in the early 90s, we've certainly seen a steady growth in interest in mysticism, as well as an overlapping phenomena such as occultism, esotericism, magic, spirituality, and general New Age interests, with one of the fastest growing contemporary denominations being the spiritual but not religious sort. So I don't know so much if what the modern world lacks is mysticism per se, but what I think it does lack is a critical understanding and discourse about what mysticism actually is, what it might be, a critical understanding of its past, and an informed optimism about what it might hold for the present moment and for the future. I would like to take this opportunity to give a very warm and special shout out to my good friend, the brilliant scholar of esotericism, magic, occultism, Kabbalah, alchemy, mysticism, hermeticism, and philosophy, Dr. Justin Sledge from the Luminous channel here on YouTube, Esoterica. For me, Justin is not only a brilliant scholar, educator, and philosopher, but I also have the pleasure of calling him a friend and a mentor who has supported this project from the get-go and continues to do so. Thank you, Justin. Make sure to check out Justin's channel, Esoterica, where he's exploring the arcane in history, philosophy, and religion. One of the greatest gifts and blessings of creating content here is meeting the other incredibly gifted, humble and kind, generous and thoughtful content creators here on this platform, creating content about religion and the topics we love, be it Justin or Philip from Let's Talk Religion or Angela from Angela's Symposium, each one just brilliant scholars in their own right. And I have the pleasure to see them not just as scholars, but also as friends and collaborators and co-creators. This week, I have the special opportunity to shout out Justin Sledge's video, which is going to be on the great mystic Heidewig of Antwerp, the incredible poet, philosopher, and in Justin's words, one of the crowning achievements of medieval mysticism. Do not miss that episode. Justin is going to release it tomorrow, and by the time you see this video, it'll probably be up right in his channel. Link somewhere here and down in the description, as usual. We are going to be talking in a more umbrella overview fashion about the category construction and conceptualization of mysticism, but if you'd like a specific example of a particular mystic, do check out Justin's work on Hardwick. Back to the video. What we're going to attempt in this upcoming series is to peel back the layers surrounding this mysterious word, to act as Lee Eric Schmidt puts it, as archaeologists dusting away sedimented layers to arrive at an array of subtle shifts and everyday frictions in the delicate undertaking of the historical excavation of mysticism. To understand what this word used to mean, and how it was used and understood throughout time, how it came to mean what it does today, and what, if anything, it means for humanity going forward. We will do this slowly and carefully, even if we're speaking a little fast, because we believe that this is important work which deserves our time and attention, and if you're here, I hope you think so too. I'd like to give three disclaimers. Firstly, this is not going to be a history of mysticism, if by that one means a history of the phenomena we call mysticism. It's rather going to be, as we said, a history of the idea of mysticism, the construct of mysticism, a history of the concept and the word itself, the story of the major developments in our collective understanding of the word and term mysticism itself. We're going to look at how this category was formed, transformed, discussed and debated throughout the ages. We're going to take a journey from the ancient Greek mystery religions and its early Greek etymological roots through the first through Christian centuries up until the Middle Ages through the Renaissance 
into the early modern period and into the Enlightenment, and finally end with the modern and postmodern decades of its study and development. Second disclaimer. We're going to be talking almost exclusively about Christian mysticism because we'll be tracing the originally Greek and then English words mystical and mysticism throughout time, words and constructs which, as we shall see, are primarily Christian constructs. Although we shall see how that construct gets expanded, past and beyond Christianity, and the debates surrounding its universalization and particularization when we get to that. For our third disclaimer, we're going to be running through the material quite quickly because of how much there is to cover, so firstly, feel free as usual to slow down the playback speed to 0.75 to counteract my allegedly hasty delivery pace, but secondly, and more importantly, if you'd like to know anything about any of the particular periods, moments, or thinkers that we'll be discussing, please have a look at the sources that I'll be citing on screen, and we'll be posting down below in the description to go way further in depth into all of the brilliant research which I really hope to merely serve as a springboard for you to get a taste and to dive in further yourself. This might be a good time to name and thank the primary scholars whose work I've drawn on for this particular series, each one masterfully commands and presents their own period of expertise. I've just taken the liberty to summarize and tie all of their brilliant research together into one long-running historical narrative with the hopes of bringing it to the public in an interesting way. I hope I've done their work justice and not misrepresented any of it, once again, if you'd like to dive in and see the masters at play, please do go and read the originals. Moving chronologically, we will start with Louis Boyer's essay on the history of the word, on early and medieval Christian mysticism, followed by Michel Dutroux's The Mystic Fable covering 16th and 17th century Europe, for the 18th and 19th centuries in England and the United States, will rely upon the making of modern mysticism by Lee Eric Schmidt, and will close in the 20 and 21st centuries largely on the shoulders of Bernard McGinn's The Modern Study of Mysticism. We'll be accompanied throughout by Jeffrey Kripal's lucid essay, Mysticism, each brilliant scholars in their own right to whom we owe a great debt of gratitude. Thank you. There will be many more works which we'll draw upon as we go. These are just the main ones, and as we go along, we'll share each source on the screen as promised. Now, I don't think any of us are operating under the assumption that thinking, reading, and talking about mysticism is going to influence our lives directly in a mystical direction or make any of us mystics, whatever that might mean. But as we said, if we are going to talk about mysticism, which I believe we should, we should at least do so intelligently, in conversation with the best available research and facts on the table as best as we can ascertain them. Let's dive in. Most standard surveys of the concept of mysticism begin by excavating the origins and etymology of the word mysticism itself, which typically goes something like this. The English word mysticism comes first from the Old French mystique, meaning mysterious, full of mystery, which comes from the Latin mysticus, meaning mystical, pertaining or belonging to secret rites, which in turn comes from the ancient Greek mystikos, and earlier yet mystis, meaning initiate or one who has been initiated into the mysteries, the secret religious rituals of the ancient Greek mystery religions, deriving ultimately perhaps from the Greek word moi, meaning to close one's eyes or lips. If we can venture one step further back, moi may possibly derive from the older proto-Indo-European root mu, which lies behind words in English that we know today, such as mute, mutter, and mum, via the ancient Greek mukos, which means mute or dumb, as well as words in the Sanskrit like muka or muni, the mute or the silent one or sage. Sometimes digging back into a word's etymology, 
doesn't shine much meaningful light onto the word's contemporary or subsequent usage. In our case, however, it does. All of the connotations that emerge from the ancient Greek, those of closeness, hiddenness and concealment, secrecy and silence, ineffability and initiation, will go on to remain alive in the word as time carries it forth, all there tightly wrapped up in its origins, waiting to unfurl the etymological flavor, the howl of the archaic Greek subterranean winds of the distant past, carry forth into the word even today. There's been much discussion on the themes of silence, hiddenness, ineffability, the closing of the eyes and lips to that which can neither be seen nor spoken, but I'd like to just for a moment unpack one of the other hidden connotations which I feel doesn't get enough attention, the theme of initiation, bear with me. The theme of initiation, the notion of the mystic as the one who has been initiated, present in the original Greek context as we mentioned, with mystis being the name for one who had been initiated into the secret rituals of the ancient Greco-Roman mystery religions, most notably those of Eleusis and Dionysus and later Mithraeus, but it could have been one of a dozen other as well, manifests itself in subsequent mysticism, this idea of initiation, in two, possibly three ways. The first is the relationship between the initiate and the initiator, the hierophant, literally the one who shows the sacred, which metamorphosizes in subsequent history of mysticism into the relationship between the shisya and guru, the chassa and rebbe, the student and sage. The process of learning from those with first-hand knowledge, who know the ins and outs, the alleyways and shortcuts, and the names of the mythological bouncers guarding the celestial doors, the one who has seen the sacred and can show others the way there. This is mystikos, or mysticism, as proximity to and relationship with the one for whom the sacred has been made familiar. The second is the mystic's process of initiation, of having to cross the liminal space into the sacred, which in both its original and subsequent contexts usually connotes the need for the mystic to in some sense die to the old before being reborn to the new, the necessity of letting go of their old identity to embrace what lies beyond it. This is mysticism as the process of death and rebirth symbolized by the undying phoenix. And thirdly is the notion of initiation as the process of becoming identified with that which one experiences within the mystery, namely the deity, or with the celestial bodies, namely the cosmos at large. This is mysticism as the process of deification, or theosis as it's known in later Eastern Orthodoxy, and by a variety of other names in many mystical traditions East and West. What ties these last two connotations together, those of rebirth and deification, is the theme of immortality, which of the few things we know of those who experienced the mysteries in ancient Greece, is that for the initiated, for the one who has gone through this process, the possibility of death was no longer something which they feared, as if death itself had become an impossibility. I wanted to just pick one of the many latent connotations to show you how much richness there is lying inside this Greek word, and how much more there is still to be unpacked and explored for us today. But now that we have laid the groundwork with some basic etymology, let us move into the next part of this story, tracing the development of the word from an adjective, mystical, to a noun, mysticism. Borrowing from the Greeks, the adjective mystical gets taken up by the early church fathers, stretching all the way back to the second century of the common era to describe a specific method of interpretation which aims to reveal the hidden, deeper meaning of Christian scripture and secondarily of Christian liturgy, rituals, and sacraments. 
The basic idea being that the texts and rituals, according to the early Christians, contained both a simple surface meaning and a deeper spiritual meaning behind the surface of the literal. This second deeper meaning was discovered through a process of mystical interpretation, and it was there at this deeper level that God was encountered. This, for those pretentious people in the crowd that enjoy some fancy words like me, is mystical as a hermeneutical adjective to describe a theosophic exegetical practice in early Christianity whereby the Christological meaning of the sacred texts and liturgy would be revealed. This usage of mystical as an adjective, back to ordinary English, is the same for the sacraments of early Christianity, such as baptism and the Eucharist, which were seen to contain deeper mystical meaning, per heis aqua et vivi mysterium, by the mystery of this water and wine, a method by which these rituals could be plumbed for their deeper meaning. For example, baptism became to be mystically understood as a process of being reborn in Jesus, or the consumption of the Eucharist as mystically partaking in the body of Jesus, an act of communion with the man the early Christians saw as God, an act which transformed mundane activities such as eating bread and drinking wine into an internal and cosmic affair, whereby, through the ingestion of the sacraments, the Christian believed themselves to have entered into an internal communion with the timeless realm of God, this is the mystical Eucharist. And this is the primary meaning of the Greek word mystikos in early Christianity, from the 2nd century all the way down to the 12th, that which unveils the mystery, namely the divine, in the otherwise terrestrial ordinary text or activity. In addition to these two primary usages, with the help of Louis Boyer's we find a third, Louis Boyers, an influential 20th century French minister and scholar, divides the early Christian use of the adjective mystical into three categories which he argues were all inextricably interwoven with one another. The first is the biblical, the second is the liturgical or ritual, and the third is the contemplative. The first two which we've already spelt out, namely the mystical interpretation of scripture and second the unpacking of the liturgical mystery of the Eucharist. The third component for Boyers denotes a contemplative or experiential knowledge of God, which he takes to mean a perceived direct apprehension of the divine through a form of contemplative experience, what we would perhaps call today a mystical experience of God. But to be very clear, both for Boyers and for someone like Origen of Alexandria, in whom he finds these categories, it is very clear that the three categories are never meant to be divorced or separated from one another. They all need and ideally feed each other within the holistic spiritual life of the believing and practicing Christian. We can see how these three meanings of the adjective directly overlap in the early Gnostic communities. As Jeffrey Kripal points out, it was the secret interpretation of scripture which led to a salvific knowledge a saving knowledge, a divine knowledge, awakening or enlightening the mind of the adept. Clement of Alexandria describes the author of the Gospel of Matthew as possessing secret teachings and, quote, certain sayings of which he knew the interpretation would, as a mystagogue, as someone who reveals and shows the mysteries, lead the hearers into the innermost sanctuary of that truth hidden by seven veils. A bit of a mysterious statement. According to Kripal's reading, the hidden interpretation was the gnosis, was this knowing, and to back this up he cites the Gospel of Thomas, which begins with Jesus saying that whoever discovers the interpretation of these sayings will not taste death, again that theme of immortality embedded in this mystical interpretation of the text. Interpretation leads to truth, 
leads to gnosis, leads to deification and immortality. As we said in the introduction, we're focusing specifically here on Christianity because we're trying to trace the Greek and then English word mysticism throughout time, a word which at least up until this point in the story is entirely a Christian affair. But it's worth noticing that this identification and definition of the mystical as a secret interpretation is not unique to Christianity. We find the same usage in traditions as diverse as Judaism, Islam, and Buddhism. Among the Kabbalists, for example, one of the central names by which they refer to their own enterprise is Torah Tasod, the secret Torah, in reference to the fourth level of interpretation available to them after the three standard Pshat, Remez, and Rush, namely Sod, the fourth, the secret interpretation which is used interchangeably with the word Kabbalah itself. Kabbalah engages, therefore, in sustained and unending effort to creatively reinterpret every aspect of Torah, reading the terrestrial human story as a metaphor for the cosmic divine drama, an interpretation which catalyzes and guides the mystical process in which the hermeneutical activity itself is a mystical practice. See Elliot Wilson for more on that. Almost the same can be said of the Sufis' reading of the Quran on its secret level, in addition to its ordinary revealed level, the Batin, in addition to the Zahir. Even in as distant as Tibetan Buddhism on the other side of the globe, we find the concept of Terma, the hidden textual treasures designed to be discovered at a time when the tradition requires them for its survival or renewal. Thus, concludes Kripal, mysticism can be seen as a creative hermeneutic, as an experience of the divine through the interpretation of texts that can alter, sometimes even radically, the original tradition. So this theme of mystical as the interpretive, as the textual, as the hermeneutic, is quite a universal phenomenon. We shall see how over the course of the next couple hundred years, the inseparable components which Boyer's laid out, the biblical, the liturgical, and the contemplative, get decoupled from one another. And we'll see what that means for the enterprise of mysticism and for religion as a whole. By the time we reach the 4th century of the Christian era, this adjective mystical takes on some new terms to describe. Christians begin to talk about the third meaning, mystical contemplation, with the language of union mystica, the mystical union between the mystic, or sometimes the soul of the mystic, and God, and a little later by the 6th century, we start to hear primarily from a mysterious Eastern Christian monk, later named Pseudo-Dionysus, we start to hear talk of a mystical theology. Both of these terms, union mystica and mystical theology, will become very important for subsequent Christianity. Notice, however, that they're both still employing mysticism as an adjective to describe something else, be it a union with God or a certain form of theology. By the 16th century, the great mystical doctor of the church, Teresa of Avila, one of the greatest religious authors, leaders, and reformers of the Roman Catholic Church, describes mystical theology as a fleeting, unexpected, but undoubtable, quote, experience of the presence of God. She writes, this, I believe, is what is called mystical theology. And Jean Gerson, a few years before her, a French scholar, mystic, educator, and reformer, the chancellor of the University of Paris, and perhaps one of the most influential theologians of his day, who gave mystical theology a pride of place in his system as an antidote to what he saw as the excesses of rationalism and scholasticism of his day, famously defines mystical theology as the experiential knowledge of God gained through the embrace of unitive love. For the next few sections, we'll be mainly borrowing from Lee Eric Schmidt, The Making of Modern Mysticism, down in the description, check it out. Despite these new terms added, unio and theologia, 
Up until the 1700s, the term mystical remained most closely tied to the method of biblical commentary and interpretation that we spoke of earlier. And all throughout the early 18th century, this term mystical remains inextricably tied to a specifically Christian matrix of thought and language. Even in the early decades of the 18th century, the category of mysticism did not exist in the English language. The way the word was still mostly used was as an adjective, mystical theology, defined for example by Thomas Blunt in 1656 as certain rules by the practice whereof a virtuous Christian may attain to a nearer, more familiar, and beyond all expression, comfortable conversation with God. Its meaning is still very clearly inextricably woven into a larger system of Christian theology linked at the level of practice to a recognizable set of devotional and exegetical interpretive habits. However, over in France, somewhere in the early 17th century, something huge happens. Mysticism transforms from an adjective, mystical theology or mystical interpretation, to a noun, la mystique. According to the groundbreaking and frankly near impossible to read scholarship of Michel de Surtout, this change is hardly a mere semantic or grammatical quirk, but a serious matter with serious implications. De Surtout believes that as science and religion in the 17th century became further split from one another, the category of literature emerges, particularly that of poetry, precisely that which does not attempt to convey information in a clear and transparent fashion as scientific prose does, but which aims rather to obscure and contain multiple simultaneous layers, connotations and implications hidden within. And just as mystical in the past, had meant the exploration and discovery of the hidden meaning, mysticism as a noun, la mystique, now according to Dissertu, emerged and came to be aligned with the non-scientific, i.e. the religious world of literature, the realm of poetry, metaphor, and mystery. The effect of this in Dissertu's opinion, ironically, was actually the emancipation of mysticism from religion. Whereas before the word mystical only had meaning insofar as it was attached merely as a grammatical modifier to a religious noun, mystical theology for example, now, for the first time in history, mysticism could be linguistically and conceptually stood on its own two grammatical feet. The transformation of mysticism into a noun then, the nounification of mysticism according to Dissertu, signifies and catalyzes the autonomy of the category of mysticism from its native religious Christian habitat. A fierce grammatical appendence that would be a sign and pave the way for things more radical yet to come. This new word, writes Dissertu, shows the distressed fault line between the clergy holding onto their authority to interpret the true deeper meaning of the sacred texts and the power that came along with that, versus the lay people for whom these texts, upon which the mystical had been laid in the Middle Ages, were no longer all that compelling and convincing. This emergence of the independent category of mysticism began a gradual process of the secularization of mysticism, and as a result, mysticism quickly became a term of derision and upset among Christian clergy. Besides for the rejection of the mystical, while still an adjective by earlier Protestants such as modern Luther, mysticism during the 17th century became an object of severe ridicule and pejorative even to Catholics, often ridiculed for lacking religious authenticity, genealogy, and history, accused of having been around for no longer than three or four centuries, starting only with figures like Meister Eckhart and John of the Cross, but having no further authentic genealogy within the church. The fans of mysticism, however, did not sit around idly while their category, 
took a beating. What they did, according to Dieser II, was to boldly retroactively fabricate a mystical tradition, taking pre-existing Christian saints and texts, christening them as part of this new canon of mystics and mystical literature through the publishing of hagiographies, literally sacred biographies, anthologies, and long lists of canonical Christian mystics of the past. Cementing the memory of this illustrious tradition of Christian mysticism post facto, stretching all the way back to the early church fathers, far before John of the Cross and Eckhart in the 12th and 13th centuries. This new old tradition of mysticism was created according to Dusser II, primarily through these hagiographic texts, through these sacred biographies, which shifted the focus of the biography from the virtuosity and miracles of the saints of the past, is the way that they were traditionally written, towards their unique experiences and their extraordinary states of mind, opening the way for the perception of mysticism as a psychological category primarily, an obscure universal dimension of man perceived or experienced as a reality hidden between a diversity of institutions, religions, and doctrines, to quote Dieter II, a subjective experience potentially available to all and amenable to open study by modern scholars, away both in experience and theory from the prior monopoly of Christianity. But all we have at this point in the history is the mere seeds of what we now know to have followed, and let us do the slow and careful work of following those seeds as they become saplings and sprouts, because the history of mysticism is far from a simple straight line of development. There's going to be a lot of interesting twists and turns until we get to where we stand today. It's only in 1736, during the English Enlightenment, where the term mysticism gets used for the first time in English by Henry Coventry to criticize sectarian religious fanaticism. He wasn't using it as a fan. And it's here that mysticism becomes negatively associated with excessive spiritual impulses, fanatical ecstasies, and amorous extravagances. In Coventry's opinion, religion was supposed to be a liberal, manly, rational, and social institution, not those, quote, deluded seraphic entertainments of mysticism and ecstasy. Here we hear Coventry's thinly veiled criticism of the Quakers and Methodists of his day, who were thought to disturb the peace of the otherwise calm, rational, moderated passions and refined tastes of Cambridge Christianity. Coventry, quite misogynistically, identified this rambunctious, largely female phenomena, which he now had a word for, mysticism, with the, quote, disappointed love which he saw as the great source of all mystical devotion, even developing an early theory of sublimation to explain how the frustrated passions of the individual are transferred from mere mortals to a spiritual and divine object, and how love is sublimated into devotion. Mysticism now, thanks to the work of people like Coventry, enters into the Anglo-American discourse, laden with connotations of misplaced passion, unintentionality, prehension, and reason-be-damned extravagance. In the 18th century, as mysticism begins to take on an identity of its own, separate from mystical theology and biblical interpretation, it came to receive a sectarian connotation. Against the backdrop of a Roman Catholic attack on English and later French quietism, the mystics came to be seen as a particular sect of Christians, a definable group of pious, if misguided, souls. As evident in the 1797 Encyclopedia Britannica entry on mystics, which reads, Mystics, a kind of religious sect, 
distinguished by their professing pure, sublime, and perfect devotion with an entirely disinterested love from God, free from all selfish considerations, and goes on to associate them with those called quietists in the 17th century and under different modifications by the Quakers and Methodists. This definition carried on into the 19th century, with the first definition of Webster's American Dictionary in 1928 defining mysticism as a religious sect who professes to have direct intercourse with the Spirit of God. However, there were some who weren't buying this sectarian definition. Thomas Hartley, in his short defense of the mystical writers, wrote, Let it be here remarked and constantly remembered that the true mystics are not to be taken for a sect or party within the church or to be considered as separationists from it, for they renounce all such distinctions both in name and deed being the only people that have never formed a sect. In Hartley's account, mystical means nothing more or nothing less than spiritual, and the mystics were the guardians in all ages of, quote, the spirituality of true religion. Hartley and his mates, William Law, John Fletcher, Francis Oakley, and Ezra Stiles, the 18th century counter-enlightenment defenders of mysticism, pushed hard against the grain and may be retrospectively seen as setting the stage for the 19th century envisioning of mysticism as the fountainhead of all genuine spirituality and religiosity. Lee Eric Schmidt's research carries us into the next period of our story. In the middle of the 18th century, the Anglo-American discourse emerging from the English Enlightenment was one in which mysticism was still very much painted as unintelligible, excessive enthusiasm, misplaced sexuality, and irrationality, a stain on an otherwise respectable religiosity of scholarship and decorum, a phenomenon which highbrow English and American liberal Protestant scholars wanted nothing to do with, roundly condemning it as false and made-up religion. This disdain for mysticism reflected the general intellectual climate of the time, whose leading intellectuals, the architects of the modern Weltanschung, to quote Zerabi Zadeh, saw mysticism as an anachronistic phenomena which had to be discarded as they entered the modern world. To sample some attitudes towards mysticism from some names you may recognize, David Hume compared mysticism with forms of false and vulgar religion, superstition and enthusiasm. Immanuel Kant believed that in mysticism, quote, reason does not understand itself or what it wants, and it is unfitting for a, quote, intellectual inhabitation of a sensible world. And lastly, Friedrich Nietzsche considered, quote, mysticism and folly of all kinds to be the antithesis of rationality. This is insofar as what they understood the word to mean in these contexts. There's a lot more to discuss and a lot that's been written on these thinkers and their relationships to mysticism, but just to give you one angle and one flavor. However, writing in response to the beating that religion was receiving from its cultural despises comes a super important figure in shaping the way we understand mysticism today, the German Protestant theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher, the father of modern liberal Protestant theology. In Jeffrey Kripal's opinion, it was Schleiermacher's 1799 on religion, speeches to its cultural despises, which laid the groundwork for the modern study of mysticism with its focus on deeply felt piety, individual experience, and emotions as the place to locate a legitimate religious life for modern skeptics. Although Schleiermacher did give a pride of place in his thinking to this mystical piety, the dominant tradition of German Protestant theology following after him gave it a rather negative reception, frequently describing it and depicting it as an essentially Greek rather than Christian form of religiosity, whose emphasis on the inner experience of God it was ultimately incompatible with the message of Christianity as they saw it. 
Using the Encyclopedia Britannica as his measuring stick for category formulation and formation, Schmidt believes that a fundamental shift in the Anglo-American discourse on mysticism took place in the 1840s and 50s. Let's follow the numbers. From 1823 to 1842, the Britannica in defining mysticism follows the sectarian patterns we saw earlier in the 18th century. But then, for the first time in 1858, with the publication of their 8th edition, something new emerges. Firstly, the title for the entry is finally Mysticism and not Mystics, a good indication of things to come, and lo and behold, as we continue to read the entry, first we see some of that enlightenment acrimony still lingering, depicting mysticism as a form of error which mistakes the operations of a merely human faculty for divine manifestation, but now, for the encyclopedia's first time, mysticism begins to be treated as something much grander than a mere devout sect within Christianity. It was now something well on its way to becoming a universal religious phenomena. Its main characteristics are constantly the same, writes the Britannica, whether they find expression in the Bhagavad Gita of the Hindu or in the writings of Emanuel Swedenborg, a particularly popular mystic at the time. From one encyclopedia edition to the next, 16 years down the line, Mysticism goes from being an eccentric Christian oddity to an eclectic worldwide happening, a global religious phenomena with countless instantiations, counting mysticism of the Orient, Neoplatonic, Greek, German, Persian, and Spanish mysticism, and, for all time's sake, French quietism, amongst its included lists of mystics. Mysticism's universalistic destiny now appears set. This encyclopedic, universalizing tendency continues on in contemporary surveys with their neat divisions of mysticism by religion, region, or language. The usual suspect categories or strands typically include the mysticism of ancient and indigenous communities, Indian mysticism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, and Sikhism, Chinese and Japanese mysticism, and the mysticism of the Semitic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. This reimagining of mysticism from something particularly Christian to something universal in scope was a result of a new cosmopolitan literature that was equal parts historical, spiritual, poetic, and philosophical that took a variety of manifestations. But without question, the most enduring and influential fountainhead for this new global reimagining of mysticism was Robert Alfred Wagen's Hours with the Mystics, first published in 1856 the book presents a series of conversations amongst friends discussing mysticism found among different nations at different periods, as they debated differing definitions, meandered across religious and cultural borders, and perused philosophical critiques of religion, all the while romanticizing the mystical. With its mix of criticism and appreciation, Wagner's panoramic perspective opened the way for the popularization of mysticism as the romance of religion, as the conduit into the highest form of spirituality. The shift from an exclusivist definition of mysticism to a pluralist, or at least an inclusivist one, indicates a further step in liberating mysticism from the authoritative Christian tradition which had defined it thus far. However, jumping back a few decades away from the continent across the pond to North America, something wholly unexpected happens. In the heart of New England Unitarianism, a bastion of liberal rationalistic Protestantism, a small but influential group was created. They called themselves the Transcendental Club, and in 1836 they met to discuss the question of mysticism. 
Schmidt considers this romantic group of ministers, authors, and intellectuals to have been the seedbed for the making of modern mysticism, despite the unlikeliness of this historical development emerging from this genteel and high-cultured Harvard-trained society. Henry Ware Jr., an early member of the faculty of Harvard Divinity School, an influential Unitarian theologian and mentor to Emerson, addressed all, quote, rational Christians in, in 1844, writing passionately, what is mysticism but the striving of the soul after God, the longing of the finite for communion with the infinite? Without it, he insisted, there is no and there can be no religion. Women in the group like Margaret Fuller shared this enthusiasm and promised to a marginalized gender, writing in her formidable 1845 Women in the 19th Century about the, quote, spiritual dignity and progress this new religious agitation could bring about writing, mysticism which may be defined as the brooding soul of the world cannot fail of its oracular promise as to women. Not long after its inception, the Transcendental Club gave birth to Transcendentalism, a literary, philosophical, religious, and political movement boasting such glorious names as Ralph Waldo Emerson, Margaret Fuller, Henry David Thoreau, Amos Bronson Alcott, Elizabeth Peabody, and Walt Whitman. The Transcendentalists, if we can paint with a broad enough brush, believed in the inherent goodness of people and nature. Reminiscent of Rousseau and the Romanticists, they were vocal critics of society which they saw as corrupting the purity of the individual with its unthinking conformity and herd mentality, and urged people to find, in Emerson's words, an original relation to the universe, in self-reliant and radically independent ways of living, in ways that would reawaken the creativity and raw originality they believed to be inherent in each individual, without need to recourse to masters from ages past. They were critical of the cold rationality of the Enlightenment, themselves valuing subjective intuition over objective empiricism. They were urgent critics of American slavery, believed in divine immanentism and the unity of the physical and the spiritual, perceiving them as two halves of one dynamic whole, and are perhaps best known for their romantic love for nature and for their grand society escaping social experiments, going far from the maddening crowds to spend time in nature with one chair for solitude, two for friendship, and three for society. They believed in exercising self-reliance while absorbed in manual labor, and the ecstasies of Homer, Hodor, and Schleiermacher, Kant and Swedenborg, Burma, the Upanishads, and Hafiz, writing ferociously to both the new era they felt near at hand, heralded by the ink of their pens and the sweat of their brows. For the Transcendentalists, as for their Romanticist predecessors, the disenchantment that modernity and the Enlightenment had brought was seen as merely suppressing the human imagination, crushing the spontaneity and natural spirituality of the human spirit. It was in mysticism where they found the remedy for the malady of the modern spirit, with which they could once again reunite body and soul, matter and spirit, God and world, restoring what they took to be the primordial unity between the microcosm of the self and nature at large, the macrocosm whose harmony they felt had been ruptured by modernity, with all her modern economy and technology, leaving the human far more materially comfortable, scientifically and technologically advanced, but at the price of our collective sanity and basic humanity, which they felt hung in the balance. In the supple hands of transcendentalism, mysticism was once again transformed, this time in the image of the German romanticists and idealists, abstracted from both its Christian and its Enlightenment critics and contexts, the term now no longer summoned as a critique of excessive religious enthusiasm or sectarianism, but instead came to denote an open form of intuitive, emancipatory, and universal spirituality.
This dreamy, ambitious, properly romantic, pluralistic liberal theology built upon the bones of New England transcendental Unitarianism continued to thrive with the second wave of transcendentalists in the 19th century with thinkers like Octavius Frothingham, an architect of the Free Religious Association, an organization committed to the distillation of a universal spirituality through the broad study of the world's religions, who saw the future of the American religious climate not as dogmatic, but as universal and liberal in spirit, with mysticism peculiar to no sect of believers, to no church, to no religion, found equally among orthodox and heterodox, Protestant and Catholics, pagans and Christians, Greeks and Hindus, as the central connecting thread of this universal religion of the future. This aspiration was seconded by others in the group, such as James Freeman Clarke, a founding father of the study of comparative religions at Harvard Divinity School, and the author of the much-acclaimed 1871 comparative work, Ten Great Religions, writing a bit later in 1881 in a text entitled The Mystics and All Religions, that the mystic, quote, sees through the shows of things to their center, becomes independent of time and space, master of his body and mind, ruler of nature by the sight of her innermost laws, and elevated above all particular religions into the universal religion. This, fittingly concludes Clark, is the essence of mysticism. For Frothingham and his transcendental colleagues, mysticism provided the psychological map for a transcultural and transhistorical intuitive faculty that allowed for an inner recognition of the divine essence in an act of spiritual union. A set of experiences envisioned as a possible basis for moving beyond theological differences, for dissolving them in a unifying sea of cosmic consciousness, the theologians quibbling from today to tomorrow, but the mystics speak in one voice. The downside of all of this transcendental romantic talk was that mysticism very quickly became unanchored from historical reality and cultural particularity. In being understood as something timeless and universal, it lost its actual feet in time and place, divorced of location and language, rite and ritual text and context. The mystic, wrote Frothingham, for example, is only by rare exception a ritualist or a sacramentalist, a claim a lot more likely born from Frothingham's own anti-clerical and anti-ritualistic leanings than from a close contextual reading of the history and datum of mysticism itself. And as Charles Morris Addison writes explicitly, a history of mysticism is an impossibility. It has no history. It appears like Melchizedek without a genealogy. And as Frothingham admits openly, we love the mystics for their inward, not for their outward life, because they lift us up above the world, not because they make us faithful in it. There are others and enough of them who will keep us up to that. We crave more mist and moonlight in America, and that the mystics give to us. There's something undeniably beautiful and uplifting about the sentiment. As Charles Everett, who filled Clark's Harvard theological seat in comparative religions, writes of mysticism as the common and the unifying the word mysticism, he writes, whenever properly used, refers to the fact that all lives, however distinct they may appear, however varied they may be in their conditions and their ends, are at heart one. The question just is, at what cost of historical actuality and local particularity does this beautiful and unifying sentiment come? And perhaps if there's a way to maintain the unity without losing the diversity. But that might still take, in the story, a few more hard years of work and sweat, and a few generations of good scholarship, some might say we're still waiting. Schmidt's final verdict on this period and her thinkers 
the makers of modern mysticism as he calls them, the inventors of an ahistorical, poetic, essential, intuitive, and universal mysticism, is that this new construct afforded them the ability to, quote, negotiate the intensification of religious diversity and to see it not as a threat to the solidity of Christian identity, but as an opportunity for self-exploration and cross-cultural understanding. However naive they may have been about an underlying sameness and ecumenical harmony, the expansion of mysticism as a category was a means of interreligious engagement, a sympathetic meaning point in an increasingly global encounter of religions. As a construct, universalized mysticism opened up conversations more than it foreclosed them through essentialism, becoming one of the key conceptual bridges that made possible innumerable religious crossings and contacts in the 19th century. During a time of ragged divisions of the pre- and post-Civil War periods, these American writers were in part seeking a religious vision to serve the national cause of political and religious unity. No doubt this modern construct of mysticism came with its appropriative orientalist liberal Protestant flaws, but it also opened the possibility of cross-cultural interreligious dialogue. Clearly, mysticism, when imagined this way, erased differences, but it also dreamed of a common ground in a cultural domain otherwise filled with conflict and violence. It should be noted as well that not all of the time were enthusiastically in favor of this universalization of mysticism. In 1906, an uptight religious critic complained that America had become a country where mysticism and a craving for spiritual experiences had run mad, and William Wallace Fenn, who would become the Dean of Harvard Divinity School, warned in 1897 of vain attempts to construct a universal religion, writing that the messiah of universalism will fulfill and not destroy the prophets of particularism, and found all talk of discovering in mysticism a grand sympathy amongst the world's religions to be a huge cloud of thin but amiable sentiment befogging the intellect. Yet despite these reservations, it was this second wave of thinkers, poets and artists who won out and kept the fire of universal spirituality alive until it erupted again in a great blaze at the end of the 19th century. And with this, we've set the stage for one of the most influential voices responsible for shaping modern mysticism, a founding father of American psychology and philosophy, the author of the varieties of religious experience, the beloved William James.